0: Good morning, I am your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the December 30, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader, and if those of you were tuned in about five minutes ago, that was the best ever string of segs I've ever heard. Kudos to Heather McCoy. This is the December 30, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. This program covers a good bit, we covered a good bit of territory with you, and I appreciate your going there with my guests and me over this year. Today, we'll listen back on a sampling of several interviews and um, that I conducted this year. The first will be a trio of women who left the orthodoxies of their respective religions, then an excerpt from the NASA astronaut Tracy Caldwell-Dyson, and we'll wrap with Marie Stone's taking over my show last June with the Shakespearean New Swan Theater principals Calvin McLean, Julia Lupton, and Eli Simon uh, with the UCI Shakespeare. So don't go away. We'll be right back after just a gif. Welcome back to the show. My first uh, excerpt for uh, the year 2014 is uh, from a show we did on September 30th. There are three women who left their religious orthodoxies, Haina Dadaboy, who left Islam, Sarah Jones, who left Evangelical uh, Christianity, and Hanigetter, Hasidic Judaism. And we begin in mid-interview here with um, these three women. Please uh, stay tuned for um, what I hope is a resumption of a really interesting conversation I had. Be right back. To talk about when you first began questioning the belief system of the religion of your upbringing, Bringing, when did you begin to, d- to doubt your devout convictions?
1: Kena. Oh, okay. Um, well, I was always Well, I didn't grow up terribly religious until I was about five years old, and my parents got religious when I was around that age. Um, So I always sort of had a different frame of reference from sort of more strict practices and interpretations of Islam. I always knew that there were other ways, but uh, my parents got religious when I was around five, and I joined in with them, um, becoming more religious than they. And it was one of those things where uh, those who I knew who were a little bit less aware of Islam and a little bit less well-read in Islam um, didn't really know about the parts that bothered me, the parts that could really cause doubt. Um, But, you know, I I managed to keep the doubts uh, suppressed. Um, I wouldn't say that 9-11, which was, by the way, my second day of high school as a teenager. um, Hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it really caused me to doubt or leave Islam, but it did cause me to research it more because my peers, who were non-Muslims, I went to high school locally here, um, were asking me questions, and they weren't being jerks about it or anything. They were just curious. And all that research led me to to find out more and more. Uh, when I entered university here at UCI, I took uh, History of Medieval Philosophy. And that was essentially, at the time, I don't know if it's still taught the same way, it was centered around the writings of Augustine. And I realized that... Christianity had a very similar basis for its theology as Islam did, and yet somehow they end up in completely different places. So for me, it was a matter of figuring out that other forms of, of, uh, of theism almost had the exact same logical basis, and yet somehow they end up not only on different sides of things, but killing each other over it. So that's really where my, doubts, my serious doubts started.
0: How about, Sarah, shall we go next to you?
2: Uh, Sure. So I had a fairly isolated upbringing. Um, Out of 12 years of lower education, I spent three of those in public school. Everything else, I was being homeschooled or I was at a fundamentalist Christian school. Um, So I wasn't exposed to a lot of information that could even feed doubts for a long time. But once I was um, starting around in junior high and high school, I did start to have some doubts. And by the time I entered college, which was a very conservative Christian school, I was at least deviating from the right-wing politics that I had been raised with, um, favoring a more liberal and feminist interpretation of Christianity. Um, and eventually it was while I was at college that I realized that I just you know, um, didn't believe in God at all anymore.
0: Well, one thing I want to backtrack a little bit is that in some of your writings on, on your blogging and all that, you say that mm-hmm. it, w- or it was in the New York Times coverage about you at Americans United for the Separation Church and State uh, with the, the Hobby Lobby uh, case that you're watching is that you were, mm-hmm. you were settling with what you thought was a reasonable kind of um, mm-hmm. religious uh, school. And so you were in, you were, there's a dynamism already in play here with your questioning Um, in uh, your your faith
2: right Um, Christian schools in the United States they kind of exist on a spectrum where you have everything from Bob Jones University and Pensacola Christian which are extraordinarily fundamentalist schools uh, to ones that are more progressive or you know at least moderate and when I was looking at colleges Cedarville did have a reputation for being one of the more reasonable if not necessarily liberal schools and so I thought I was getting an experience or would at least be able to ask all these questions that I had about my faith in an intellectual environment. And of course, if you've read the New York Times story, you found you know that that was very much not the case. Right. And we we may have an
0: opportunity. We've got such such to cover today. Hani, why don't you please answer? It's your your answer is a little bit different because of your uh your relationship with uh, with Hasidic Jew, Jewry at this point. But uh, what would how would you answer the question about what uh, first, had you questioning the 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 tradition in which you were raised?
3: Um, so to answer that question, I would have to say that my marriage didn't work, and there I was with three children and no education and no way to earn a living. And so when the system stopped working, I started questioning more than that because I grew up um, in a Hasidic environment. Very, we we go to. We basically have shtetls, which are like these little enclaves of people. Um, Where I grew up, we had um, grocery stores that were separate, Hasidic and hardware stores and dress shops. And we basically had a little village that was, you know, just the only people I saw were Hasidim or different kind of Jews, which were like still all, all of them orthodox in one form or another. And so the only thing that I really saw was different kind of orthodoxy. I went to school 12 years um you know my entire high school with the same kind of kids we went through high school we went from you know kindergarten through twelfth grade in the same environment um, we had censored books if we did read anything English, it was censored English was my second language um and so my 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 life was extremely insular, and I didn't know anything other than. And although even if I kind of felt maybe that I did not want to get married, which I didn't, um, I didn't know that there was an option not to, and I didn't really know how to say that. So at 17, my marriage was arranged. I met this young man once, and we were married. I was not taught anything about birth control, and so within 11 months, I had my son and then two two daughters after that. Um, My marriage didn't work. And I had to leave. And so here I was, a single mom at 23, um, and the system failed me, a system that is there really to protect us and to take care of us and all of these other things that I was taught it would do, which it did when my mom had cancer, we received... Um, Food was brought to our home. Um, my father doesn't drive, and so different people drove them into the hospital. There was always somebody, even people we didn't know. The community itself is built in a way that we were taken care of, and so. But then the system failed. Once the system failed, I began to question a lot more than that. Um, I questioned whether anything I did was had a purpose, whether the Torah, which is the Old Testament in, in English, um, whether that was real or true, or and what does that mean and whether the interpretation that the rabbis had created through generations were real and what does it mean even that it was real or not real and how do we interpret text and all of that. And so I began to question everything simply because the system had failed me. Um I do believe that there's a higher power that guides us. It's one of the reasons I chose to become an interfaith minister, because I grew up in this enclave that I grew up in, not only is it so insular, but there's this message that we receive, which is we're better than anybody else. And I didn't believe that, but it's the only thing I knew. And so when i as I was leaving um, and kind of trying to figure out what that meant, the more I learned, the more I realized, I believe what Haina said was was that um, you know all of these traditions that we that we study or that people practice are really all based on so much of the same ideology. And so what I've done in my life is incorporate all of these different traditions into my life in some form or another because I love tradition. I grew up with tremendous amount of ritual. I grew up with ritual from the morning, from the moment I woke up until the, the moment I went to sleep. And there's this kind of saying that you might have heard, which is, you know, you can take the girl out of the town, like you can take the girl out of, Rockland, but you can't take Rockland out of the girl, right? And so here I am, and I've been built and raised with so much ritual in my life that I just love it. Um, I create different meanings for the rituals that I do. I do different rituals that I've done growing up, and yet I do some of the same. And our home is filled with ritual, some of which are Jewish and some of which are not. Um, And even the ones that are Jewish, perhaps we do in a different way. For example, uh, this past weekend was Rosh Hashanah, and yes. we had a group of 20 people at our table. And so we did all of these different rituals and just created different meanings for them. So I think I'm still in the process of that, and yet at the same time, the moment I started questioning was the moment that, um, was the, moment that the system had failed me.
0: I want to get—yes— um, Honey I'm, and Sarah I would like for the two of you to to uh talk to each other about the insularity in which you uh, were raised I Hena had much more exposure I think there is a distinction for her from the two of you but the insularity in uh what where you were uh, uh raised in what was expected of you and like even to the extent of Sarah she's now doing a homeschooling anonymous but the homeschooling and those uh, fundamentalist christian schools also had their own kind of insularity so uh how uh what does sarah what uh hani is talking about does that have some resonance with what your uh, early experience was and your 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 questions that you were starting to have somehow in your insularity
2: um certainly to an extent uh, there are some obvious differences i would say um but just looking particularly at my early years when I was being homeschooled, I just, I didn't see anyone who didn't belong to my family unless I was at church. And even then at church, it was the same people over and over again. And that was maybe, you know, one to three times a week. That was it. So I have, you know, no pop culture references. I have, you know, I, I just, the nineties is, is not something I really experienced. I lived through it. I didn't experience it. Um, Mm. And as I got older and, and started to move like, towards a fundamentalist Christian school, and even eventually in public school, um, my experience of the outside world was always filtered through a very restrictive lens. Um, so it's taken quite a bit of adjustment to move past that insularity um, and just de- develop basic social skills and be able to, you know, kind of survive in mainstream academic and professional environments.
1: Hina, did you want to add something? I, I actually, um, I didn't mention this, but um, yeah, I, I think I may have been given the wrong impression of my background. Until high school, I was entirely religiously schooled, okay. including a year in London in a very strict all-girls school, um, where despite the fact that it was all girls, we all had to cover our heads and wear a certain uniform and all that. So I really relate to what Sarah's saying about not getting the pop culture references. Grunge is something I don't understand. <laughs> for example, um, I, I, that never happened for me. So, yeah, no, it's it's tough. I mean, I I've managed to pick up a lot, and I play catch up. I joke that you know Netflix is now my my culture school, and I go uh, there and I mm-hmm. watch everything that everyone else talks about. But, you know, it's difficult. There are certain gaps in my knowledge, and that's that's that can be tough too.
0: And I know, Hani, <laughs> from what I've been reading, with a lot of lovely m- memoirs about Hasidic Jewish women that. There were things right down, to even one's anatomy. Uh, this, in particular, case the um, Deborah Feldman the, who wrote Unorthodox, that she had mm-hmm. no idea she had, she didn't know that she had a vagina, and she only knew about it because she was getting uh, t- training prior to her wedding and then if they were trying to explain to her they gave her some sort of very abstract kind of mechanic uh, kinds of lessons and that kind of thing but I don't know honey if you wanted to address some of what your insularity meant in terms of lack of pop culture and lack of all things
3: so I think lack of pop culture for sure um, it I'm still catching up I've left the community 14 years ago I mean I'm, I'm still and, and I'm still catching up. Um, I have kids who are teenagers who make references that I have no idea what they're talking about. And it's like, oh, yeah, you uh. know, mom. Um, and so it's, and, and there are certain things that I'll never understand. The difference between music and what's what is, like, so foreign to me. I knew one kind of music, and that was classic music. And so even if I like certain music, I don't know what I like. Like, I don't know the genre of what I like, I just know that I like this. Okay, um, which is really frustrating. And um, we'll sit around the table, and every so often, when I think I finally got it, I realize how far I, I don't. I just, I just don't have it, and I don't understand what's going on. In terms of my body, I mean, after my first child, I went into a library, um, which, considering where it was located, was really kind of a more of a censored library. I mean, it was, it was definitely, it was. The state, you know, it was a county library, but it it basically was serving the Hasidic community. But um, my family was a little bit stricter than strict, and so I wasn't allowed in there. Um, but I went in there, and I took out a book about my anatomy to figure out how I was getting pregnant and what how I can stop that.
0: That's after your first pregnancy.
3: This is after I had my child, and I had wow. my child. Um, this is after I had my child, after I had him completely naturally because I'm kind of a little bit crazy like that. Um so I read up about pregnancy, I knew what was happening to my body because I'm fascinated by biology and so I knew what was happening to my body and I and I also understood mechanically how I got pregnant. I mean I wasn't that wasn't the case. The the issue was that I I didn't understand what my body was doing mm-hmm. to encourage that because my question was and that's why I walked into the library, because my question was, everyone's having sex. How come they're not getting pregnant? Like there must be something people are doing that's that's stopping this from happening. And so I took out a, a book to figure that out. I mean, here I was, 20 years old, with a child, and I had no idea what my body was doing. Um, and and that was still me very much in the community, um, yet yet still in some ways questioning already. And I think that the more I think about it, the more I realize how much I had questioned before. But... For example, another piece of where my kind of insularity was really, really palpable is I'm gay, and here I was kissing girls. My best friends. I was in an all-girl school. We never had any contact with boys. As soon as we hit 12, or they hit 13, we were not allowed to be next to them. And even in younger ages, we only played with, um, you know, our cousins and our and our and our next door neighbors. But once we hit that age, like once the girls were 12 or the boys were 13. We were totally segregated, and so I here I am kissing girls as a teenager, and I don't even know that what I'm doing, ha- like means anything other than, because I have no words for what's happening. I have absolutely no words for what's happening, and I don't understand that most women want to do that with guys. So we're sitting in synagogue, and we're looking over the machita, which is like this divider and my friends are there and they're all telling they're all kind of choosing which boy they think is cute. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, ugh, you guys are so immature, like this is what we're talking about. Ugh. And this is regular teenage behavior. We're fifteen years old. They're all kind of looking at which guy is cute. And then finally one of them nudges me and it's like, Hey, hey honey, who do you think is cute? And I and I I had to find somebody, so I found this guy and like all of them turn to me and say, Ugh he looks like a girl.
0: Wow. Well, and honey, in your some of your own um, materials, uh, you you talked. I mean, you talked about your awareness of being. Um, uh, well, you didn't know the word was, but at fourteen, mm-hmm. you you said honestly, I didn't know that we were supposed to love men. I thought we just had to have children with them. So that's it's a with all those frames of reference not there. It must have been odd. I don't. You didn't know to be lonely,
3: but maybe you felt lonely and odd. You know, I didn't. I, I wasn't lonely because I really didn't know that I was different. Nobody talked about, nobody talked about attraction. I had no concept of knowing that mm-hmm. people were actually attracted to their partners. In in Hasidic communities, men and women do not touch, um, even husband and wife in front of their kids. It's all done in the bedroom. And so, I, d- I didn't understand that there was. I had never seen a movie ever. I'd never seen things that would make me think that there was some sort of attraction between a man and a woman because everything needed to look proper and i truly believe that you know you get married to a guy and you you have these feelings that i have for women not realizing how different i was i think that by the time i started realizing how different i was was kind of in my early twenties before i left and and that's when the loneliness set in when i started realizing that my friends were actually attracted to their husbands even if they didn't use those words I started kind of there were little hints that they dropped that that had me thinking that and it was like oh wow this is interesting and here I am pining and having feelings for them
0: You're listening to excerpts from the year 2014 here on Ask a Leader that was a uh, henna databoy Sarah Jones and Hani Getter talking about leaving orthodoxies. After this brief break, we'll be right back with NASA astronaut interview with Tracy Caldwell-Dyson, International Space Station veteran. Stay tuned. The second guest here, as I said, was go, is International Space Station NASA astronaut veteran Tracy Caldwell-Dyson, who was uh, t- taking a postdoc, working on her postdoc here at UC Irvine in the chemistry department. And so uh, we start the interview with her talking about when she uh, first was notified that she received uh, a an admission with the all-prestigious NASA program. Here's the interview excerpt. Why don't we start with how you heard that you were accepted into the astronaut corps when you were at UCI back in 1998.
4: Oh, that was an exciting day for me. Uh, I was in my office. I shared a small room with another postdoc, and I received a phone call, and it was from the back then the chief of the astronaut office, Ken Cockrell, and he um uh, I had heard through other sources that if the chief of the office called you that it was uh, a sign that you made it in, so I was quite astonished when I heard his voice and um he tried to make small talk with me on the telephone
5: <laughs> and
4: asking me about my truck and and um how everything was going here in california and um and then he asked me if i would be um uh, if I was interested in in coming to work at NASA as an astronaut and I started hyperventilating and I couldn't finish the conversation. I um I really I was I was astonished and um I was uh I was in shock that, that I was getting this opportunity and so he said calmly like any naval avi- aviator would he said, "You know, how about uh, how about I give you call right back?" And <laughs> and so he had to he had to give me a few minutes, and and it was right after that I hung up the phone, and then I went screaming through the hallway, all the way up to the the floor where our laboratory was and the other researchers in my group. And I just let it all go and yelled, "I made it! I made it! I made it!" And as we were all celebrating and trying to catch our breath, I remembered, "Oh no, he, he's calling! I got to go back to the phone <laughs> <Right>.
0: well, <that laughs> to they accept kn- the job." <laughs> they knew it was good news because you weren't flushing your eyeballs from some kind of chemical burn. Exactly. Yeah,
4: what? they they knew that it had to have been something good regarding NASA, which we were all waiting to hear uh, the news from
0: so he, you took the call just a, a few moments later when you returned to that floor
4: absolutely and and the funny part about that was after he um, after he gave me all of the details that I needed to know after accepting the position, he then said, "Well oh, there's one more thing, Tracy oh? uh, in twenty four hours there'll be a press release that will go out with your name and the rest of your classmates' names, and until then, we'd like you to limit the news to just your immediate family and my jaw dropped because I had just ran through the, the chemistry building, <laughs> screaming, <laughs> I made it, I made it, I made it. And then all my my uh, um, rest of the group knew about it. And um, he could sense something was, was wrong, and he said, uh, I think it we're a little late. <laughs> but I got the job still. So
0: Well, they must have a contingency plan because it's sort of like getting notification, like maybe a Nobel laureate or whatever. People can't. How can you suppress something that that, that terrific?
4: Exactly. You know, I think they I think they somewhat expect it, but right. they have to give that little disclaimer so that uh, um they know what you what you what you were supposed to do. <laughs>
0: or you or you'd have to kill everybody on the fourth floor. Yeah, something exactly. Like that, something <laughs> like
4: that. Well, um
0: then what I'd like to find out is tell tell us all about how you trained for this. Your running, swimming and weights regimen, all of that while you were doing some top notch science
4: there. You mean training for a mission or just in general being an astronaut?
0: training at at the beginning while you're still working on your postdoc here
4: oh yeah so um i knew that i knew well i was interested in in uh, fitness and staying in shape anyway but i knew that if i if i were to make it that a lot of my job depended on my um physical health and and strength and so i uh was no stranger to 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 running but um i I took it upon myself to ride my bike uh, to and from work every day, and that was no less than an eight-mile bike ride um, in in one direction. So um, it was uh, a daily routine, and then I also um, uh, lifted weights there um, at the gym and uh, did quite a bit of running, especially down at the beach on weekends when I had the time.
0: Well, they remember that you were doing some phenomenal things, that weighting yourself down in the swimming pool and all kinds of things that not not your typical uh, workout regimen calls for.
4: Yeah, you, there's uh, you know, uh, water resistance is a wonderful thing, but if you could add more weight to it, <laughs> it uh, it makes it all the better. So I would um, I had a a rope and and um, a harness and could. Uh, uh, swim against the resistance of of that system, and and just get better fitness out of it without having to use too much of the pool.
0: Well, I know you'll you'll talk a great deal more about uh, the training regimen at the, the at the space center. Uh, what I'm I'm interested in sort of stepping out of that a little bit about uh, what was happening. Perhaps after the training, we we have here, I don't know if you had a chance to stop by at some point, UCI has worked on a prototype rowing machine for the space station, and I don't know at what point it was going to be transferred up to the space station. I don't think, I'm not sure that it's up there. Have you seen um, some something of that prototype anywhere around uh, at Houston or uh, in Southern California?
4: You know, I have not, actually.
0: But, it, but I remember that it has a nice feature of working on the, the, muscles on the balls of your feet, since I understand that uh, you're all famous with your atrophied muscles that post uh, how many months uh, at the space station in zero gravity that you are you just tip over? You don't have any muscles in your feet anymore. Tone. Well,
4: if you weren't to do any exercise at all, then yes, that would definitely be the case. And we've learned so much from the beginning stages of our space station program to today in, in terms of that, that we have uh, improved the exercise equipment on board and and placed so much emphasis on that part of our well-being up there that it's actually producing a lot of great science in the, yes. in the process of making us more healthy for our return. But yes, if we weren't lifting weights or um, passively running on our treadmill, then um, the, the balls of our feet would not um, get much of a workout or uh, the sensation that it requires to, to hold yourself stable once you're back here on Earth and all of your weight then is placed back on. The, ves-
0: the vestibular function that you talk about.
4: Yeah, oh, that's a completely different story. Um, there's really not much um, that you can do on orbit uh, during those six months to kind of prepare yourself for return of or- uh return to Earth where your vestibular system is concerned. But it does seem to be a, um, a phenomenon that uh, the more... Um, uh, uh, the more exposure you have to that environment, uh, the the more readily your body adapts to it. So, I was much more uh, adapted uh, to both uh, microgravity as well as coming back to Earth on my second flight as okay. I was on my first.
0: Wow. Well, and I and when you did return, uh, how I mean, since the bone density and muscle muscle tone and muscle mass are all heavily affected, were were you able to gain back? You're uh, in, um, I don't know, in a, in a number of fronts, chemically, physiologically, uh, and, and anatomically, Though, uh, were you able to get your, your bone density back to uh, what a 30-something, 40-something would uh, expect to have?
4: Absolutely. In fact, I was fortunate that I didn't lose any bone at all, which isn't typical, uh, wow. but certainly a testament to the equipment that we have on board now. We have a device called um, ARED, which is an acronym for Advanced Resistive Exercise Device. And it is a, basically a universal gym system um, that, um, that we have on orbit that allows us to do everything from squats to bench press to calf raises. And all of the, um, all of the major parts of our body that are more prone to bone loss are those areas which our trainers target for, as exercises. And so I, did, I was very faithful with the regimen that they gave me and as a result, when I came back, I had uh, no bone loss, very, very insignificant bone loss. And it took me no time at all to come back up to what I was before my flight.
0: Well, that was good news for you as well as for NASA then.
4: Yes, absolutely. And, and I think that the more, um, and they're also, um, the scientists that are um, using that device um, in their studies are helping us to develop better exercise regimens to, to help um, everybody uh, to, to come home with those kind of results.
0: Well for those of you who've just tuned in you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and uh, in modular units all over the world listening uh, on the web at kuci.org my guest is Dr Tracy Caldwell Dyson NASA astronaut and international space station veteran who will be speaking at the Beckman Center at in Irvine we're talking about her her uh, physique and how it has was affected in microgravity and how were you I guess you had to train to to be under constant vigilance and so what was that like that you're you were talking about in some other interviews Uh, psychologists are checking in with you and your your uh, your body's uh, physique is being monitored what's that like 176 days of being monitored
4: Oh, well, it starts well before you launch into space. I'll tell you that much. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, you're you're being monitored um of, during your training and even in the post-flight um portion of your mission. So, y- you kind of just get used to it after a while. Um, you during your entire um training regiment, you're you're often in class with and you're one person, but you have maybe five, six other people standing around um Either watching how you're training or or your your mentality, or your, your well being, mm-hmm, et, mm-hmm. et cetera. So, you, it kind of just um, goes in the background of your of your consciousness, and you you just do your job anyway, and and you you're so well prepared that um, those are not no longer a distraction uh, to you. So,
0: I see. Well, um, and one uh, other questions I was checking out uh, around uh, were, uh, what fascinated me was. Sit practices like acupuncture, acupressure, are some of those things becoming more incorporated to help maintain the astronaut's physical and mental condition?
4: I wouldn't say as a rule it is. Um, many of us um, enjoy those uh, treatments, those modalities for um, improving our health or, or um, you know, just uh, keeping us in balance, um, but it's certainly not something that is... Uh, I would say instituted in our um, in our uh, healthcare in in the astronaut corps.
0: No, it's not okay. No. So um, then I would like to know um, to the extent that you can say, shifting away from the uh, physical, mental um, c- conditioning and monitoring, to the extent you can tell us what portion of your mission. Would be considered classified, and uh, or could you break down what's um, what's yeah classified versus sort of the public domain that NASA can always put up on their website?
4: Well, I would say, uh, gosh, the majority. I want to say ninety ninety nine percent of what I do on orbit um, as an astronaut aboard the space station is all um, public domain. Uh, there are, you know, my my private life up there where I have. Um, private family conferences private medical conferences all those things are just me and my family or me and my docs but um and nobody invited to that and and i would say that uh you know our, our crew quarters our bedrooms were kind of off limits from from the webcam the live the live right. shot from iss but the most part there's really nothing these days um, with our missions that's considered classified back uh, in the earlier days of the shuttle missions where we did missions for DOD there were definitely classified portions of those missions but today um it's very uh... it's very transparent to to the public what we're doing in fact we invite the public in to the extent that we set up a camera in our home <laughs> unlike you do here um and we invite we invite the the public the tax paying public to to come on board and to see what um, what their hard-earned money is uh, being used for.
0: Well, it does seem apparent that all the the um, astronaut corps is being asked to be emissaries, both uh, in flight as well as uh, afterward, to keep giving NASA the kind of uh, promotional tools to keep keep the funding. And that that is actually one of the questions I wanted to know is um, uh, whether um, you have. Uh, your emissarial functions have changed as the like things like the federal s- funding uh, funds have been sequestered uh, in the last uh, budgetary cycle.
4: Uh, n- not really. My role really hasn't changed much. It's really to um, I mean the 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 details change a little bit about what you um, what you talk about and what kind of questions you answer, but for the most part, um, I'm there to to. Uh, to relay to the public to describe for the public and our and our decision makers our researchers everybody what it's like to be in space uh... there's so few of us in in um, relation to to the population of the world that can actually answer that question and that question really hasn't changed uh, except that there's more of an emphasis today on doing science which is um, a relief to me since that's my background Um, and you know, we're 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 learning more about how to fly in space, how to live in space, but how to work and do um, profitable things—not just in a monetary sense, but for our well-being, for um, benefiting humankind—to to, to um, profitable in terms of, of of using our money money wisely to get from here to outside, um, you know, to to orbits beyond that of low Earth, um, just to 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 bring. Those details of how we can do that better um, is really, uh, I think, my role when I go out to the public and speak.
0: And um, I'm noticing th- when you're talking about uh, low Earth orbit, then I, b- then the role that you see NASA having from here on is it's the or the International Space Station. It's as m- is is w- what portion do you attribute it to being uh, maintenance of planet Earth versus leapfrogging? Uh, space exploration beyond
4: yeah that's a a a thoughtful question because i think it's both and to what degree one or the other I, i don't know that i could say but you know there's there's so much to be learned about our earth from that vantage point not just being able to to be that high in altitude and be able to look back at the earth but to um to be in microgravity and have that unique environment and and the circumstances that we have to live up there, which which drive technologies, drive these developments that then go back on into into our life here on Earth. Um, that's just as important, um, especially right now as we're learning how to get off of the surface of the Earth into space. We 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 can't do it as readily yet as we do as um, with air travel, which everyone can enjoy. So we really need to to do this in order to look back at our own planet and say, how can we make it better? But you know there there's exploration in the hearts of humans, regardless of what country you come from. And in order to learn more about this single planet that we inhabit, we do need to get beyond um, our own atmosphere and to go explore those things. But we need to do it timely and we need to do it, you know with a lot of smarts. and that's why the ISS, the International Space Station, where it is today, is in the perfect location as we begin to learn more about how our bodies and materials and our technologies um, behave in this environment before we commit ourselves to going further than we're ready to go right now
0: right and uh, there are there's the subsequent international space station launches launches to the station are as they're contemplated there that scott Kelly's going to be up there for he'll be one of the first to be up there for a full year so it's uh are you and are you scheduled to go back up to the space station
4: uh right now not that i know of i'm busy um at the moment um uh, supporting the space station and teaching our uh, our newer astronauts um uh, the 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 ropes, so that they can be prepared to go up there for their mission. And I'm also getting to spend some time with my husband,
0: right? Get reacquainted. Mm-hmm. So, th- and what? So, you're going back to some of your earlier roles of speaking from the space, from the from the ground control to the uh, the space station uh, mission specialists.
4: I, I do some of that, but I actually right now are work, am working more behind the scenes, and so I've been spending a couple of years since my return from my mission. Uh, basically, organizing the space station. Mm-hmm. I, I led a team of people from NASA uh, to um, to improve the stowage situation and the car- the transfer of cargo from these commercial ships uh, to the space station. Kind of a logistics yes. uh, sort of project. But because I lived there, I was able to uh, uh, direct the teams in in a more efficient way to um, to handle the the large amounts of. Co- cargo that were coming on board the space station with the limited amount of room that we had to keep it, and then just the flow of of keeping uh, supplies uh, coming in and then um, being uh, removed from the space station, whether as trash or as returned items to the ground. And then we um, have a new set of uh, astronauts that have been selected, astronaut candidates as they're called right now, and they're going through all sorts of elementary um, phases of their training and so I'm there to help them right now namely with uh, space walking uh, they're all getting geared up to do that general training and um, I'm just helping to bring the experience I had from orbit uh, into uh their training at the Neutral Buoyancy Lab in Houston.
0: Well, with your 22 plus hours uh, in the in the walking, you, um it's called the Extravehicular Activity, the EVAs. That you you will have a lot to tell them. And I, I, um. So we'll go back to that. Um, I'm curious how um, you're mediating a lot of feelings when you realized there was a hazard going down in. Uh, that was in. Uh, let's see, not August. It um, yes. in August and. Uh, you, in fact, you were the one that detected that malfunction at the very be- at the very beginning of that. So you're you're sort of reconciling the kind of uh, I guess you're managing the dread because you're an astronaut and you're trained, but you're also dealing with a, a like a lifetime opportunity for the uh, the extra vehicular activity, the spacewalk. So uh, that that must have been a lot. And you take all that training to what. Uh, you can talk to men and women uh, astronaut candidates about uh, preparing.
4: Yeah, that's uh, you know it's something that um, you know we never wish for bad things to happen on the space station and uh, no, but we do you know we we live on a on a um, on a mechanical system and so things are bound to break, um, and um, we we spend so much of our time in training learning about the systems that make up the space station and how to respond to. To most uh, emergencies, and and we don't train every um, you know response to every problem on board. So when when something does happen on board, such as when our pump module failed, it was um, it was nice to see the training for myself. It was nice to see the training kick in mm-hmm. and and uh, to have responded um, as uh, as quickly as I could, and then to work with the teams on the ground. And um, what what of course doesn't get um talked about very much is what was going on in the space station uh for the um, for the remaining you know 8 or 9 hours from the time that happened to the to the morning when most people were waking up and and having a first cup of coffee our crew on board were um, working uh diligently with the ground team to put the space station in a safe configuration because uh with one of our cooling loops down we had to transfer power and systems over to the other Mm -hmm. channel and what that meant for us on board was doing a lot of rotations of racks and getting into the bowels of the space station to plug things in and to move our precious scientific samples from one deep freezer to another and we were up all night doing that but then to um, to then at the end of that effort (sighs) realize that our job still um, wasn't over we had to get ready for these spacewalks and then go out and actually uh, remove and replace this pump um, was yet another huge fulfillment of, of uh, a dream come true for, for me personally, as well as my, my crewmates who were involved. That you know, you never you never wish for things you know drastic to happen, but when they do, and and you can put all of your training to good use. Then um, it sure is uh, is very gratifying and and uh, very motivating.
0: I must say, though, after having put in a whole night of, of moving everything around, and then you've got an eight you don't know it's going to be eight hours, but an eight hour spacewalk after that. So, oh, imagine the necessary uh, part of drilling to, so that you can do these things instinctively.
4: Yes, well, I have to admit that there was a I think we had um, two days at least between the time that the pump failed and then the time we went out the door for the first spacewalk. But um, so we did have a little bit of rest, um, but still your adrenaline's pumping. And, and all you can think about is the fact that if that other pump decides to go, then <laughs> you're, you're, you've got no cooling to the space station kind of situation. And so um, you you no longer are um, thinking about being tired or hungry or anything like that. You're just looking to get the job done.
0: Surviving. Wow, that's phenomenal. Well, I guess what I'd like to do is close with it's a really a, a, a very expansive question. Uh, since your appointment nearly sixteen years ago, Tracy, what changes in the space program? Stand out for you the most, whether it's collaborating with increasingly more countries that are contracting with the international space station it's is there the, the privatization, the repertoire of activities that are undertaken the the Chinese going it alone, what kinds of things stand out for you?
4: Okay, you pretty much uh, said it all there. I think when I became an astronaut when i was a when I was a postdoc and I had uh, at Irvine. And I had submitted my application to NASA and was at that time waiting to hear from them. I I never thought about um, the shuttle going away. I mean, I knew that I knew that the space station was being built, it was preparing to be launched, and that that was really what the new um, the new cast of astronauts would be uh, focused on. But I don't think that I never I ever really thought much about our shuttle, our precious shuttle system ever going away. And so I think that as I as I progressed in my career having to say goodbye to to our shuttles um that was a that was a a, a mo- monumental um part of what I thought was going to be a long career having to say goodbye um was rather emotional and surprising. And then I think uh yes, definitely the 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 realization of of um our world cooperation, our international partners. That's watching that development Throughout my career has been a really um, motivating part of the job. It was so difficult in the beginning, as, as it is with any you know new roommate, basically. Uh-huh. Um, but as you as you learn um, how to uh, how to respect one another and to work w- with one another, it it just becomes a very um, necessary. You begin to realize how necessary that is in in the grand scheme of this uh, endeavor we're calling space. Exploration that we do it together as a planet, not just uh, a country. And then, certainly, uh, most recently, it's been the commercialization of space and NASA's role in that. And, um, you know, we we always talk about going to the moon and Mars, um, and I guess that was the, the necessary part about. Thanks for staying with
0: us. We'll be right back with Marie Stone. Took over for my show with the Shakespearean. Principles of the uh, Swan Theater Summer Festival. We'll be right back. Thank you for staying with us. Marie Stone was my superb guest hostess last June this year. She interviewed, respectively, the Shakespearean directors and scholars uh, Calvin McLean, Eli Simon, and Julia Lepton to talk about the Romeo and Juliet and the uh, I'm trying to think now. What was uh, the Midsummer Night's Dream? Uh, oof! No, Merch- Well, I went, uh, the, and the comedy that um, this last summer. This is the interview that she conducted, and um, we'll be right back
6: as, as a wrap. What your what appeals to you about this play? What is the enduring um, love that you have of Romeo and Juliet, and, and what keeps drawing you back to it?
7: Well, I really came to Romeo and Juliet pretty late uh, in the last five or six years. Romeo and Juliet actually doesn't get the critical attention that I think it deserves in scholarship. It's often seen as a young person's play. It's taught in, in high school and sometimes in middle school. And it doesn't have the double plots that some of the other plays have that give them a kind of more layered complexity. And so it's been a really incredibly exciting for me to get to work with this play with Cal, uh, to get to see the actors working with the play and also to teach the play both in the community and here at UCI. So we'll have a summer school Shakespeare class running parallel with the festival which will allow undergraduates to really have the best of both worlds to really get to study this and Twelfth Night and another play in real detail as a scholarly activity and then also get to see it performed at this incredibly dynamic, intimate space of the New Swan uh, with the directing and the acting that we have here going on. I agree with Cal that one of the great things about the play is um, that its continued reality emotionally. I've got four teenagers, <laughs> three girls and a boy. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I just I I do read the play now with that same mm. kind of pathos. Sure. You know, what if mm. one of my kids felt they couldn't come to me? Mm-hmm. What if they thought I would judge their choice right. in a way that I would that I might viscerally. But I would come around, I would work with them with whatever issue they got into, whatever desire they had, whatever transformation and leap they wanted to make, you know, that we would want to be there for the kids. And Romeo and Juliet don't feel that way. Uh, They don't have that support. We have that amazing scene early on where the mother is trying to have the talk, you know, about sex and marriage with her daughter, and she can't even do it without having the nurse present because the nurse is the one who has shared all the intimacy and done all of the mentoring and education in life that the mother, for whatever reasons, hasn't been there to do. As a working mother, I feel pathos there. You know, am I there enough? Is their nurse the Internet? (laughs) Is their nurse Instagram? You know, do they know that I actually... Have a lot of knowledge about, you know, <laughs> contraception. And are they Anything willing to talk they, to you? <laughs> are they willing to talk to me? So, I, you know, I feel very much that parents' pathos. But as a teacher of undergraduates, I also love accessing the young people's point of view and getting kids, I say, is we teach out of our seats here at UCI. You got to get up in front of the room, you got to bring your book. You gotta shout these lines, you gotta figure out what's going on here emotionally and um, in terms of the imagery. And, and that's very exciting for undergraduates. And one of the things I've learned from Cal, which I absolutely love, is he'll criticize an actor occasionally for sounding too Shakespearean. And then he'll work <laughs> yeah. with the actor to figure out what is the, what's really going on here mm. in a way that, that we continue to connect to today. And I try to do that with my students, too, and I think it's, it really opens it up for them because they think Shakespeare is boring, is hard, is old, can't possibly connect to their lives. And what I think we try to do both in the classroom and in the theater is to show how incredibly fresh and real this work still is for their generation as well as for ours.
6: I love this notion of it uh, opening up a dialogue between parents and children, and and I don't know if you bring that out in the play that maybe this is an opportunity for people in the audience to start a dialogue about, you know, their I, parenting relationship.
5: I think it, and I hope, uh, it will come to mind that the uh, uh, that the play is an opportunity to really understand that our obligations to our children are uh, are are both mysterious and very deep and very immediate. We 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 have to take the bull by the horns, as it were, and uh, um, and somehow uh, uh, reach our kids and and uh, make sure that our children are protected. Um, you know, it's Shakespeare is its own kind of experience. It's uh, a really good production of Shakespeare is neither boring uh, nor uh, irrelevant. Uh, there, he is he is such a, a A master humanist he is such a master psychologist his his understanding of of what it like what it is like to feel like a 14 year old or 15 year old or 16 year old or what it is like to feel like a king uh, Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of one's life is unparalleled it it, and it communicates um, in a good production you know, it kind of doesn't matter what it was, what it, what we think the productions were like back in the 16th century. Uh, the important thing is is that they're here now and, uh, we are performing them on this particular stage and, uh, Shakespeare's incredible insight into the human condition and our need for that insight is just the same as it is now, as it was in the in the 16th and the 17th centuries and and they still play they still reach you they still can move you they still make you laugh uh and ultimately i think they still instruct you
6: right right so let's talk about this stage what makes this stage unique what um oh it's uh, great <laughs> it's it's uh
5: you know the last production of romeo and juliet that i did was in a uh, 500 seat house and um most of the productions of Shakespeare that I have done have been in large houses this is this is a a a small little jewel box theater Mm -hmm. with uh the audience uh right on top of the action um so you know we get to do the balcony scene on a whisper um because everybody is quite close um it, it 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 causes me as a director to rethink how things are done so that I can keep the sense of intimacy that the space demands. Um, but it also allows me to sort of explore the play in a different way than I, I would have, or I did, in a larger house that's, that sort of uh, suggests a, a larger world. This is a, a This is an intimate space, and because of that, we really get to uh, uh sort of enact the intimate action
6: very nice i always wonder if there's anything unique to having theater outdoors you know where um
5: al dente uh, yeah right right al <laughs> fresco al fresco, El fresco. I mean, yes you're right al dente is pasta. is the pasta al <laughs> fresco thank you
6: I love you know it kind of brings the natural world in. I mean, dogs bark and babies cry and mm-hmm. airplanes go over and you know there's rain. I don't. I understand
5: to... we're shooting down airplanes from. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> we'll be having drones
7: patrolling. That's right. <laughs> right. But of that course, Shakespeare's the, uh, original theaters were outdoor. I mean, some were. of the plays were performed indoors and in, in court situations and private homes. And ultimately, he had a private theater that was indoors, but mm-hmm. the, the, he was really shaped by theaters like the New Swan, and that's part of the, the vision for Eli, I think, is to have a space that really brings in some of the affordances and opportunities of those original theaters and to make those active for the actors and for the audience in ways that really do bring us uh, closer to Shakespeare's time.
6: Yeah, I love
5: that. When I ran the Shakespeare Festival in Illinois, um mm-hmm. I remember there was a production of um I think it was uh uh The Merry Wives of Windsor. And uh in the in the final scene in which uh they're out in the forest of something and uh and uh John Falstaff is traipsing around as a as a deer. Um this very light drizzle wasn't a rain it was a bear it was like a cloud moved uh onto the theater and made everything shine uh with this uh with this moisture and it truly was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen um uh to have that scene played in in that uh and then there are other stories that are not quite <laughs> so, in which the weather was not quite so cooperative. <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: What do you do Well, when thank, something crazy? Happens? Thanks for staying with us. We're going to uh, now go into the, the close of the show, and wishing you a happy new year. That was Marie Stone, who is the writers on writing co-host, and she was kind enough to fill in for me in the, the uh, late of June. So thank you for joining us today on Ask a leader with these excerpts. Next week, we'll hear from Professor Emeritus Luis Suarez Villa in the Political Economy at UCI's Planning, Policy, and Design about the US rapprochement with Cuba, and then from Vincent Nguyen, who started a new club here on campus, the Anteater Startup Collaboration. I'll talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Happy New Year all, and just see what KUCI has in store for you in 2015. Thanks for being with me this year.